2: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at com slash PWRadio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and AudiobookRadio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly.
3: And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book
2: publishing world. On today's show... Author Richard Zax discusses his new book, Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese explores the copyright case around Google Books, which has just wrapped up.
3: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And the first one is something I think you will enjoy, and that is Hamilton: The Revolution,
2: or the Hamilton, as, as it's being called.
3: Yeah, and I hear that people have been posting receipts of their pre-purchased books uh, as if they were the the tickets themselves. So this is the you know, it's a photo book, but also I believe the you know this is the photo book for the for the uh, uh, for the show and the Annotated, and script. The annotated script exactly yeah yep so the list price is 40 dollars, and it's just topping it number one
2: yep not a, not a surprise there. yeah lots and lots of fans of the show i don't know if you've uh, i have not seen it but see or hear it yet but um i've heard parts of it plenty plenty of people who haven't seen it which you know it's Obviously, Broadway's "How to Stick It" right now have still fallen in love with it through the cast recording. Right, um, it's an incredible show, an incredible album, and uh, from all reports, this is an incredible book.
3: Yeah, exactly. And um, then at number three, we have Gwyneth Paltrow, whose uh, books—the uh, last three, I believe, maybe four—have all hit the bestseller list, debuting in the top five. It's all easy, delicious weekday recipes for the super busy home cook. All the dishes are surprisingly tasty with little or no sugar, fat, or gluten. And that's Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, newest. Then we have another thirst quencher. This is quench your own thirst. Business lessons learned over a beer or two by Jim Koch from Flatiron. He's the founder of Boston Beer Company and a brewer of the Sam Adams Beer. We say this is an engaging and well-written blend of stories from a beloved company's founding and sound guidance on surmounting common dilemmas faced in business and life. And that's at number nine. Mm-hmm. Number 12, we have a book called uh, First Women, The Grace and Power of America's Modern First Ladies. This is by Kate Anderson Brower. She's the author of Backstairs Look at the White House, The Residence." Um, and this is the uh, the most recent one coming from that. And it's been, it's been getting a lot of news. Number 14, uh, Brian Houston's Live, Love, Lead, The Best is Yet to Come. We don't have a review of this, but from the publicity material, how do people experience the best life that God can uh, intends for them? And he argues that answers lie in understanding that Christian life is an adventure. Then we have, it's kind of interesting, number 16. This was originally published in October of 2015. This is hmm. Brave Enough by Cheryl Strayed, who's the author of the best-selling Wild. And this is a, a collection of quotes which is drawn from her, her writing. This has jumped up back on the list at number 16, and quite honestly, I'm not too sure why. So, 31, we have The Last Good Night, a World War II story of espionage, adventure, and betrayal by Howard Bloom. And we say uh, in our review, passion fuels the missions of World War II secret agents Cynthia, a.k.a. Betty Pack, uh, in the scrupulously researched profile of the Blonde Bond from Vanity Fair, contributing editor... Plum. And that's what we have right here.
2: Yeah, The, the Cheryl Strayed might have gotten a bump as she uh, just appeared on Oprah. There and you go. So that, that would do that, it. That may be, that may be what kicked her up the yeah. list. Uh, I'm more interested in what uh, put Live, Love, Lead all the way up there, too, since that came out in September of right. last year. yeah. So uh, some, some interesting movement there. Sure. Well, not so much happening in fiction. We do have a new number one, which is The Obsession by Nora Roberts. We gave it a starred review. Um, which Kind of no surprise, Nora Roberts is continually... Hitting the the top marks, both uh, on the bestseller list and with reviewers, and both under her own name uh, and as J.D. Robb, which is uh, her pseudonym for thrillers. In The Obsession, we say that romance Queen Roberts entices readers with a winning tale in which a woman tries to embrace love, even as horrific events of her past threaten her happiness. Uh, And this is about the the daughter of a man who was a serial rapist. She discovered uh, his activities, freed his victim, got the police involved, and now has to kind of come to terms with that in her own life and uh, we say that Roberts has an unparalleled ability to paint a picture with words readers will easily picture Naomi's photographic art and her rambling home with its beautiful view and the story is expertly executed with sizzling romance affable characters and enticing suspense so that's at number one with a bullet um, and uh, sold 43,000 copies right out at the gate nothing else has come close to that right on the fiction list Uh, Number five is Most Wanted by Lisa Scottolina, and uh, this is, uh, we call it an uneven standalone, and uh, it's about a Connecticut couple who have decided to use a sperm bank donor after three years struggling to have a baby, and uh, they don't know the name of the donor, but they see his photographs, and uh, the woman who is now pregnant uh, with a baby conceived with his sperm becomes convinced that the donor is a serial killer, Mm -hmm. so... Uh, slightly convoluted, contrived plot there. Um, we say that it's strongest when it focuses on the trials of a couple desperate for a child and the psychological ramifications of using a sperm donor. But too often the story sinks to the melodramatic. Mm-hmm. And it's unredeemed by uh, Scandalina's usual verve for character. Uh, she's doing a big author tour, 400,000 copy first printing. Like I said, it's not number yeah. five on the list. Uh, so uh, certainly people are snapping that up. And uh we've got some stuff for the geeks and nerds out there. At number 9 is a World of Warcraft novel and uh, at number 15 is the Wonder Woman Earth One Volume 1 mm-hmm. collection uh, by Grant Morrison drawn by Yannick Paquette and uh there's lots of buzz around uh, the Wonder Woman book, especially since she made a cameo appearance in Batman versus Superman.
3: That's right. Uh,
2: So everybody's really interested in Wonder Woman right now. This is a a reimagining of her origin story. And the World of Warcraft tie-in novel is uh, number 14 in the series there. And, uh, you know, it's a big, adventurous, epic fantasy mm-hmm. exploration, um, uh, that undoubtedly will draw a lot of the World of Warcraft fans. Great. And, uh, finally down at number 22, I just wanted to note Titans by Leila Meacham. Um, she's the author of Roses and, uh, this is a, a novel, one of those big scale, sweeping, exciting, dramatic novels, uh, set in texas in the early 1900s and there's uh, romance family drama uh, a little bit of everything in there and that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list great i'm rose fox
3: and i'm mark rotella this is publishers weekly radio
2: next up richard zacks tells us about the bankruptcy and recovery of 60 year old mark twain we'll be right back
3: i'm lee eisenberg author of the point is and you're listening to publishers weekly radio I'm Mark Rotella.
2: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
3: Today, we've got Richard Zacks in the office with us. His new book is Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. Richard, so glad you could join us. Glad to have me. So, So tell us a little bit about this book and Mark
1: Twain and this raucous tour. Um, Twain basically had this amazing career He was the funniest man in America The funniest man in the world And it all came crashing down around age 60 In 1895 It's just, there's a side of Twain That basically has sort of been written out of the history books For a large, to a large extent Twain had this desire to gamble To invest uh-huh. And he picked some real Lulu's And he succeeded in running through all his money And all his wife's money and just the thought of, like, running through all my wife's money, I just, <laughs> <laughs> there are medieval torture devices, <laughs> you know, I mean, oh, my God. And so he, he basically, in effect, ruined their life. He went bankrupt, and, and he, he she was an heiress, and he had to sing for a supper. He had to go on a round-the-world comedy tour to make uh, make enough money to pay back the debts.
3: So this was, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, his life before this time. So this was, you said 1885. 95. I'm sorry, 1895. Um, at this point, uh, I, and I remember in our review, start review of your book, uh, we, you, you had said that he was the
1: wealthiest writer of his era, of his generation. He was definitely one of the highest paid authors. There's no doubt about it. And the thing that really irritated him was he was known as a humorist. And he wanted to be a literary author, and his his daughter, in fact, wrote how I uh, how I hate the name Mark Twain. He, they think <laughs> he is a maker of funny speeches, mm-hmm. you know. And he so it, whatever someone has, they always want something else. It's like right. you know, Louis C.K. has to write like uh, the next serious novel, um, and that's what basically Twain, was happening to Twain. So here, here he is trying to reinvent himself as a writer of serious books. He's working on the personal recollections of Joan of Arc. And uh, also he's trying to reinvent himself as a businessman, as this hu- hugely entrepreneurial uh, guy who will invest all his you know, money from publishing and all his money from his wife's fortune mm. in, these, uh, in these investments. So he's going through a real transition period. So to, to, answer, to get back and really answer your question, he'd already written Tom, he'd already written Huckleberry Finn, he'd already written Life on the Mississippi, he was the author of more than a dozen books and he was now trying to change to be a more serious author and to become a, a businessman.
3: So when we're talking one of the more successful, most successful writers, how, how does that translate to today's? Uh, how, how did writers live then, uh, especially Mark Twain, uh, maybe
1: compared to today's market? Well, what's really fascinating is, and people, again, this has just been kind of written out of the history books. Mark Twain was a different kind of author because he sold via subscription sales. He was sold by door-to-door salesmen. And it was considered a little down market. It was considered a little insulting. The literary authors, the William Dean Howells and the Henry Jameses, were sold in the bookstores. And Twain would point out to anyone that would listen, they only sold 3,000 copies maybe of a book, even a book that was called a big successful book. He would sell 50,000 copies, but they were sold door to door, and mm-hmm. it was a little wow. demeaning. Yeah, they had these cam- <laughs> this, these <laughs> folded really- billboard things that they put inside these long coats, and they would unfold it. Anyone that would listen, and they would pitch uh, pitch the book. And
2: so he was basically the, the indie author of, of his, of his day. He was out there doing the equivalent of 50,000 Amazon sales for his self-published ebook.
1: That that is exactly right. And, and the other ebook ebooks, the other door to door books were things like, um, self help, self remedies and snake oil and and a lot of religious books and a lot of pretty, Skeezy books were being sold that way, but then Twain came on it the scene. It is
2: like Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
1: not touching that answer. <laughs> I am thrilled. I want my number to rocket. <laughs> Call me. And Twain was really into selling books. You know, that's the thing. Right. He was. He could. He could be the greatest self promoter, and they. You know, he puts P.T. Barnum to shame. I mean, Twain. Twain is just so brilliant at it. Um, but that 's what i didn 't understand about him when I started the book that he w- He was always someone who wanted something that he didn 't have when he became the greatest humorist in America. He wanted to become you know the greatest literary writer what, what he had his wife 's fortune, which was literally in the millions in modern dollars and he lived in a mansion and he wanted more he wanted to be as wealthy as a Rockefeller or a Vanderbilt mm. um, He said um, man will do many things to get himself loved. He will do all things to get himself envied. And and the more you read these things, they're witty maxims, but they are Mark Twain, that this man was tormented by these conflicting desires and it came out in these funny sayings. Hmm. Uh, what's what's one of them that few of us can stand um, prosperity? Another man's, I mean. <laughs> you know? It's, it's, it, but there's, that's there's who that he is. There's a nasty
2: undercurrent.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and- a, yeah. yeah.
2: It's. Uh, it sounds like he was um, someone who was really struggling with a with a lot of this. And uh, and tell us a little bit about these businesses that he tried to invest in that <sighs> that failed spectacularly.
1: God, I'm shaking my head. Uh, for this is radio. Uh, he uh, magnetic uh, telegraph that was a disaster. Um, his biggest disaster was the page typesetter, which was supposed to revolutionize this, uh, the the setting of type. Um, it was this massive machine. It weighed almost four tons. It had, uh, 18,000 movable parts. There was, um, the inventor was James W. Page, who in the beginning, Twain, had no qualms about hyping um, people that he invested in without telling anyone he was investing. So he called him the Shakespeare of mechanical invention. Um, he called another man the Austrian Edison without admitting that he was backing these devices. Mm. Um, but anyhow, it was supposed to, uh, you know, to set type was was done the same, base, the same basic way since Gutenberg. You found a little tiny thing that had an A on it or a B on it. You set it in a case, you tightened the case, and then you printed all the letters. This was going to be completely automated and mechanical. And um, and <laughs> they came so close to having it work, it would tease Twain. He would see this perfect demonstration and be reseduced into investing and he invested in it for more than a decade. He kept pouring, he just, it's like doubling down on a bet. I don't know if you're ever at the racetrack and you have 10 bucks and you lose it and then you bet 20 because you're going to win back that 10, then you bet 40, then you bet eight. This is what Twain kept doing mm-hmm. and he never thought, he somehow always believed that the page device would work and... It never worked. It's, uh, it wound up, one of them wound up as scrap metal for World War II. You know, it was just, it was just sad.
2: Oh, man. Yeah. That's, that's tragic. Yeah. So it, it just, all of those 18,000 parts kept failing. Or- well,
1: they would come really close, but what happened was, um, they would gum up with a little ink or a little dust, a little dirt, and it would jam. So then they'd have to rejigger it, and then it wasn't as fast. And yeah, something would break down. But the, the the way he lost, the way he went deep in debt and the way he actually went bankrupt was he started his own publishing company because, and this is good for Publishers Weekly, he wanted to be paid higher royalties. He was furious that he had been cheated by his early publishers, so he believed. He was only given a 5% royalty on his first book. And he, he would find out later from other people that that was kind of a Rube's royalty. Most people got at least 10%. Mm-hmm. So he spent... The next, like, 20 years of his life trying to, to figure out a way to get a, a bigger royalty. He wanted 50% of net profit. Like, whatever the... Pu- he just figured, I did all this writing. Why should a publisher make a little more money than I did when they're just the businessmen? Mm-hmm. So, he, he got really obsessed with this idea. And when he finally... When he couldn't get it to work out, he started his own publishing company. He was going to pay himself 90% of net profit. Okay. Thought he was getting the last laugh. And he got no royalties the company was so, such a disaster he wound up getting no royalties oh boy yeah
3: so then here we are uh 60 years old uh
1: bankrupt both him and his wife uh where were they living they well that's the sad thing they had built this beautiful very expensive home in hartford connecticut with so many cool details it's still there it's a great place to visit um and they couldn't afford to live in it after 1891 um mm-hmm. They had been there about close to 20 years. And Livy wasn't, being an heiress, she didn't want to live there in uh, reduced circumstances. Right. She didn't want to live there without seven servants and a carriage and a coachman. And the, she didn't want the neighbors to see they were in trouble. So she, they decided as a family, they would say that Livy needed health treatments in Europe. And they, in Europe, it sounds crazy to go to Europe to save money, but they were living so expensively in Hartford, it was actually cheaper to go to uh. Europe. And, so they went to they they left in 1891. And the sad part of the story is they never succeeded in moving back to their mm-hmm. Hartford home again. But uh, so they went on this trip, these these speaking engagements. So, well, basically what happened is he he had to declare what was the equivalent of bankruptcy in 1894, and it was called um, voluntary assignment, and it was um, incredibly humiliating because no one knew. In fact, Publishers Weekly wrote about him back in the 1890s, which I love, they said that he has such a reputation as a shrewd businessman, and yet he is unable to start his own Mm -hmm. publishing house. You know, that it was kind of like a, you authors, you be careful, don't think you can do this because you can't. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so he goes in and it's humiliating, literally front page headlines, Mark Twain fails. Wow. And can you imagine if, if you're, I'm just trying to think of who's, you know, Whatever the leading funny writer today, and uh, Dave Barry. And right. Headline is Dave, Dave Barry, Barry fails bankrupt, everywhere. Yeah. Dave Barry bankrupt. Dave, you know, and that's what and and he took it really badly. I mean, he he just was humiliated. So well, especially because his big goal is the quote you said he wanted to be the envy of everyone. Right. He did. He he. And you know, and I think their house is so. Uh, so amazing. The idea that that's not enough, the idea that he, and it, and it irritated his wife. She didn't think that they needed any more. They had three lovely daughters. They Mm. were living in this mansion. Um, she didn't see the need, but he, he wanted to be, uh, you know, like one of his characters, like Colonel Sellers out of the Gilded Age. He just wanted to, uh, to pull off. Uh, so they, they basically have to. Pay $80,000 back, which is the equivalent of $2.4 That's in a money.
2: lot of money in 1895. Wow.
1: Yeah. So it's one thing. He could have kept writing and they could have kept squeaking by, but he was getting, it, it, there was a battle for his conscience, basically. Livy wanted to pay his wife, wanted to pay everyone back in full. And his advisor, H.H. Rogers, who was one of the wealthiest men in America who worked with John D. Rockefeller, he wanted to pay like a dime on the dollar. And and, um,
2: and be like, be glad you're getting this. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Like typical businessman, t- Donald Trump going through bankruptcy, right, right. He paid whatever. I don't know the exact amount, 50%. I don't think anyone knows the exact amount. But um, so Twain was just so torn because he wanted to be a wise guy and a hustler and a shrewd businessman and pay the least amount. And there is his wife talking chivalry and honor and family reputation and never bet against the wife. Mm. Um, Twain wound up agreeing to pay everyone back in full. And she agreed she would go. She had never traveled with him on one of his speaking tours. She agreed to travel around the world with him. And, um, that's how the, the tour started. And, and it was a great opportunity to make some money. I mean, he went to, um, 71 different cities, played 122 nights in a year. I mean, this man's 60 years old. This is traveling on steamers and railroads. Yeah. And this was an incredibly onerous thing to do, but he did it. So, so tell us a little bit about that.
3: That time, how? So you said steamers and railroads. What were the venues like, uh, and how long was this?
1: Uh, he he traveled for basically almost exactly a year, and uh, the venues he liked to never play more than fifteen hundred seats because he 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 wanted to talk in an intimate way, um, so that I don't know if you know his speaking style, but it was very unusual. For I don't think there's a modern person that does anything like it or would have the nerve. He had such nerve. He spoke in a deadpan voice, talked really slowly, and made you wait for the punchline. Mm. You know, I mean, the simplest example is, obey your parents when they're around. <laughs> you know, which is not the least bit funny if you say it. And it's not all that funny slow, but it's it's better. Right, right. You know, and so he did that to all his stuff. And so wow. he made people listen really carefully. He has like... um. The weather was was uh, rainy, rainy enough not to go to school, and just rainy enough to go fishing. You know, I mean, he just. But you, so many of these things they just don't work unless you get his exact phrase and you get. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyhow, so he talked. He, he he talked like that. He did ninety minutes. He did six or seven stories. Uh, he prepared about thirty stories total. They were his classic hits. Frankly, from when he was younger and funnier. It's sort of like. I don't know about you guys, but you have these stories that you've been telling for years and you've gotten them pretty perfected. These were his go-tos mm-hmm. like um, the uh, the Negro Ghost Story, the uh, Corpse in the Moonlight, the um, Grandfather's Ram. And he had perfected the time. He knew him cold. Mm-hmm. And so he um, they. all I can say is the audiences loved it. And here he was, a man whose books had started to taper off. They weren't selling as well. He was in financial trouble. And then he goes out on this tour and he is just heralded as literally the the humorist of the century, the funniest man in the world. And he's also heralded that way in Australia, in New Zealand, in India, in uh, South Africa, and all these places now with the Telegraph, these clips, these reviews keep filtering back to the back pages of the American newspapers and it completely revives his career. Um, I, I don't think he realized quite what it was going to do when he first set out and it, it and and livy making him pay back all the debts in 1893 the country had what's called a panic of 1893 and all the businessmen were hiding behind whatever legal loophole they could hide behind and twain paid everyone back and that was headline news in the country mm. so he had the double whammy international reviews and headline news and uh, it totally revived his career and uh, a lot of a lot of biographers have just downplayed the, the bankruptcy because they think it's going to be, frankly, boring and serious. And it's not at all. It's Twain. Twain was so animated and Twain it worked up, you know. So, anyhow.
2: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
1: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly
3: Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
2: I'm Rose Fox.
3: And I'm Mark Rotella.
2: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
3: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
2: Welcome back. We're talking with Richard Zacks, author of Chasing the Last Laugh, about Mark Twain's final comedy tour. I don't think anybody these days really thinks of him as a stand-up comedian. We remember his books, and um, some of that is just that there aren't any recordings of of him doing these wonderful deadpans. How, how do you have a sense of what these performances were like? Is it just from people who wrote reviews?
1: It is. It's really frustrating. You know, but it's the funny reason why we don't have any recordings. <laughs> He was such, he thought of himself (laughs) as such a shrewd businessman. He thought someone would make illegal pirated copies, (laughs) but pirated wax cylinders, pirated Edison wax (laughs) cylinders of his voice and they would sell them. And I mean, back then there was no protection. I mean, he was right. And he was insane that he didn't at least keep 10 of them in a vault at home, you know, for the rest of us to, um, and, and everyone who heard him, it's uncanny. They say that they adored his books, but they thought he was even better in person. There was something just magnetic about this uh, so and it was hard, frankly, to get across in the book. I mean I tried I, I put dashes and pauses and bolds mm-hmm. and italics. I wanted to really I mean here you know some of these are his maxims, but some of these are things that he also used in you know, just an example of Twain. The holy passion of friendship is of so sweet and steady and loyal and enduring a nature that it will last through a whole lifetime if not asked to lend money. Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Uh, <laughs> uh, he d- and, you know, the thing, the quotes, the key lines are usually not ones. I mean, I quote from the Maxim's because they pop out. But his are sto- the funniest line I think he uttered in the whole trip was, I took the sash, which mm-hmm. sounds insane. But he's telling the story about going fishing, coming back at midnight, hiding in his father's office so that he won't get a whooping if he goes straight home. And in that office, unbeknownst to him, is a corpse. And so Twain is lying there and he thinks he sees a hand in the moonlight. And as the moonlight shifts, as the earth turns, he sees a little more up the arm and the chest. And then he he sees the wound in the chest. And then he bolts and he says, I didn't go out the door. I went out the window. I took the sash. I didn't need it. All I can tell you is people were, you know, it's just, he's in this story, the story. You see, like to set that up right, I would have had to talk for 10 minutes to get you in this mesmerized state. And then I went out the window. I took the sash. I didn't Hmm. need it. I mean, you know, so it's hard. It's hard to get across. And what was uh, his wife doing? What was the relationship like during these tours? Uh, his, His wife was like, mrs grundy to a certain extent she was the one who made him mind his manners he complained that he had to change his shirt and shave every day when she traveled with him i mean she she was brought up uh, sort of the the wealthiest family in elmira new york the daughter of a of a coal coal uh, you know transporter coal magnet so um um it was a very different trip with with her and their daughter came along too, 21-year-old mm-hmm. Clara who was very pretty and could sing and could play the piano and, you know, drew a lot of attention from the boys which mm-hmm. infuriated him cuz he was a very protective parent.
2: And um what kind of research did you do to find out what how all of this felt cuz it sounds like you're really trying to put yourself in Twain's shoes and his wife's shoes and the audience's shoes. How did you get there?
1: Uh I sp- well, three years of work. Um, the best part for me was that, thank God, the Mark Twain papers are unbelievably amazing in Berkeley. And mm. they basically either collected the originals or have made photocopies of every single writing of Mark Twain. So you go there and it's like one-stop shopping. It's amazing. Wow. So, so, but better than that, they published a lot, You know, their autobiography was a big bestseller, but they published the notebooks of Mark Twain. But they're only up to 1891. And my story is 1895 through 1900. So I found a lot of material in the notebooks they haven't gotten to yet, which was just great for me. And then his relationship with H.H. Rogers, the letters, basically Rogers was his financial advisor and Twain felt the need to entertain Rogers. And for whatever reason, a lot of the biographers haven't chosen to focus on the, maybe they feel uncomfortable that Twain was friends with best friends with a millionaire. I don't know. But twain is some of his funniest material is just trying to make (laughs) entertain rogers so he'll keep advising him Hmm. so
2: so that that was kind of how he paid for his services with with humor
1: yeah i don't want to paint him as the jester because he would never think of it that way and rogers never made him feel beholden but um, later after twain finally um succeeded in coming out of debt and making some money rogers took that nest egg and invested it for him and, you know, I didn't know this at the time. There was no such thing as insider trading in 1895. Mm. It was a perk of management to give tips to their friends and their relatives. Hmm. And they, you know, H. H. Rogers was um, setting up Federal Steel, which would become this enormous conglomerate. And uh, he got Twain in on it and Twain tripled his nest egg. And um, that kind of changed the arc of Twain's, Twain's money from then on. He was never at risk. Wow. Yeah.
3: So how did you come up with the idea for this book? I mean, were you a Twain fan or how how did this happen?
1: I was a bit of a Twain fan. I mean, I, I, re- I really loved Innocence Abroad, which I don't know how many of your listeners uh, are familiar with. But that was his first big book. It was his comedy book. There, uh, It was a mock travel memoir. He, you know, he has the thing about, it, uh, I don't know, when they, he found out the prices the Arab boatmen were charging at the Sea of Galilee. He then understood why Jesus learned to walk on water. You know? <laughs> I mean, but there's just line after line in there. I thought I loved it as a kid. I loved roughing it. And then, um, you know, obviously Huck and Tom. So they were in the back of my mind. And then I found out about the round the World Tour and I looked into it and I was just amazed. There's been one book that frankly is pretty weak and um, you know, small press and not that well done. And and so I just was really thrilled then once I got the book deal, I realized, oh my god, I have to research seventy-one cities mm-hmm. around the world. I'm going to die. I mean, and they're in the 1890s, and I like to be really thorough. So, uh, I after a while, I just had to sort of cut it off and mm-hmm. you know find a few significant details about you know, you know I don't know Wagadougou, or he didn't actually go there, but uh, War- Wararamu. I mean, all these very strange places.
2: So um, you were really trying to put yourself there but without maybe taking your own tour of seven cities
1: well the one book that was written the guy um did go and retrace the route it was kind of a retirement move after he'd been professor Hmm. and um he kept finding no trace of hotel no trace of theater (laughs) ruins here no can't even see so i mean 90 percent of it he couldn't really find you know and the world had changed so much so no, I did. I like to really only use authentic time period uh, reporting. Mm. I don't, you know, I don't read the books that are talking about the late nineteenth century in Australia. I just go back to the to the memoir of somebody who was there, and even if it sounds ridiculous to a, a modern reader, that's even better. You know, they had apparently on Australian trains they had a long, low box that the dogs had to be shoved into. You know what I mean? Like just details like that that you just couldn't make up. Um, so I like, I like finding stuff like that or, or one of the best hotels that was built in um, uh, both in Australia and India. This was just the cusp of inventing elevators mm. and a, a lot of wealthy people didn't trust that the elevator would work. So it's a 10 story hotel with a magnificent 10 story staircase all the way up to the top floor for customers who just didn't trust the elevator. So I don't know, just authentic details that I think add up to create the time period.
2: So let's talk about a, a couple of your other books briefly. Um, you wrote The Pirate Hunter, which is the true story of Captain Kidd, um, and also uh, Pirate Coast, which is about Thomas Jefferson and the First Marines. So um, it feels like the 19th century really seems to draw you in. What's, what's the appeal there for you?
1: Um, the appeal is... Uh, that it's not the 20th century or the 21st century. <laughs> Basically, I just really like finding out things that, that are surprising about, I don't know, Thomas Jefferson's freckled face, you know, that you just don't get. And, um, I like time travel and I mean, my first bigger book was, uh, the Captain Kidd book and that's back in, you know, the 1600s. Mm. So, um, and then the next book, you know the the pirate coast book is is eighteen hundreds, and now I've done two in a row that are eighteen nineties, and it felt such a relief to have the same time <laughs> period twice. I mean, it's, it cut it could probably cut a year off, you know, to have that sitting there. So, mm. um,
2: so, so, you've already sort of got the the background down.
1: Well, I, I did a Teddy Roosevelt book, Island of Vice, and mm-hmm. that was it, it. Kind of was uncanny. It was set in. It starts in May eighteen ninety five. And Twain went off on his tour in July, 1895 from New York, both started in New York. Mm. So it was a huge help to already basically know the time period and the, and the characters and some of the, you know, uh, I don't know, just the way the horse carrot you know, in New York back then had, um, 60,000 horses, each horse poops 30 pounds of horse manure. So that's 1.8 million pounds of horse manure every day that had to be cleaned up. I mean, it's just the numbers are staggering you know and they were basically dumped in the rivers they had these you know sometimes they were sold to farmers but you just such a different city you know i I live a little near central park south that i could smell the horse manure and i'm trying to think of an entire city of that and that's 10
3: (laughs) yeah exactly that's 10 horses that de blasio has spared right
1: right right Right, so
3: so uh, so just going back to an earlier question when i said how did you you know, land upon the mark twain subject what about your subjects in in general um besides you know the time period uh and the time travel what what draws you to these these characters
1: i like to find i'm a contrarian first off one of my early books was history laid bare then underground education i like to find out things that goes a, run a little counter to what people first thought and then i discovered over time that i like mission books i didn't know that when i started writing them but i like Basically to only do a couple of years in somebody's life and do it really well and have, I like, I like plots. I am, have a very short attention span. I need a beginning, middle and end. I need something really exciting. Like Captain Kidd, will he succeed in capturing? He was actually a pirate hunter. Will he capture the pirates or will he be blamed as a pirate? You know, uh, let the plot move through there. The next one, Pirate Coast is a secret mission. Uh, to North Africa to free um, 100 U.S. sailors that are basically kept as slaves uh, in Tripoli. You know, that's to the shores of Tripoli. So, these are missions, they're historical, and they're a little counter to what everyone thinks the story is going to be.
3: And how do you come across these? I mean, the idea is,
1: is it just like, whoa, Captain Kidd? No, (laughs) it's it's (laughs) kind of exhausting in a way. Just underground education helped me out because that was an entire book. Of maybe two hundred of these type stories, I, mm-hmm. some I don't know the exact number, but I had Thomas Edison's electric chair, I had Joan of Arc's virginity tests, I had, I had all these counter the the original fairy tales that are so much creepier than you think right. they are. So mm-hmm. I had already done a lot of the legwork, but then it turned out that I got Captain Kidd out of that book. Uh, actually, I got the Barbary pirates, you know. So I guess underground. And then I've watched like twenty-five writers use. 25 other ones out of there but you know I didn't get to them in time like Edison's electric chair or some of the others but
2: so you can sort of go back to that as a as a little wellspring of source material
1: yeah it was although I think I think other writers have picked over I don't think I have anything um and the Mark Twain wasn't actually in there so but there's yeah probably a few left
2: So you're going on tour right now to support this book. Um, You're going up to the Mark Twain house in Connecticut, which sounds like it's going to be a blast. Yeah. Uh, And uh, after that, do you have another project in the works?
1: Uh, I have some ideas. I haven't wanted, I have this, what I think is this really cool Renaissance idea set in the Renaissance. And I just have been uh, a little on the fence, whether to commit to it. Um, And I also, believe it or not, I've gotten some Hollywood consulting work, historical consulting work. So, um, um, and what exactly is that? that? That's where you sit in a room while the four screenwriters debate over the lines and then they'll go, well, um, was there really a police carriage back then? And what would the side of it have looked like? And, and was there a separate driver or, or would the captain have driven them? Uh, you know, so you're you're basically just advising them on, um, you know, how, how tall would that building be? Is that a plausible rooftop to jump from here to there or? And are you expected to know this off the top of your head, or do they give you time to research? You're expected to know off the top of your head. It's kind of a ridiculous wow. quiz show. Yeah.
2: That sounds really intense. I had no idea Hollywood cared that much about historical authenticity.
1: <laughs> well, this is uh, it's, a, it's a paramount anonymous content project. Uh, you know, um, that's, uh, yeah, they've been... And then they'll send me emails, you know, that uh, tell us about Bellevue. What do those rooms look like? What kind of restraints did they use? Oh, gosh. So it's kind of... I kind of like it because... It it makes you learn so many obscure, obscure things. So right. I've been doing that for a while.
2: Well, it sounds like you you have a consulting business waiting in the wings if you ever want to uh, give <laughs> up writing.
1: I don't know. You know, you th- you feel like there's so many historicals being made right now, but if you actually count them up, you know the um, the Nick and uh, some of the others, it's not as long a list as as you think. I mean, I, I'm sort of good for the 19th century and and pirates. You know, I don't know how many. Uh, <laughs> I don't have. <laughs> You know, I haven't done Renaissance yet. I can't do biblical. I don't know. You know, so I'm I'm a specialist.
2: (laughs) We've been talking with Richard Zacks, and you can find his book "Chasing the Last Laugh" in stores right now, and undoubtedly sold in 71 cities around the world. Richard, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. This is great.
3: I'm Mark Rotella,
2: and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
3: Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese talks about the Google Books Supreme Court decision. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Benedict Jacker. I'm the author of the Alex Ferris series, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: I'm Rose Fox.
3: And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
2: Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is calling in from Houston, where he's at the Texas Library Association Conference. Uh, But he's here to talk about the Google Books case, which has finally, it seems, come to an end. Hi, Andrew.
0: Hey Rose,
3: hello Mark. Hello.
2: So tell us um what this big decision is and whether this is really the end of the story.
3: Yeah, and give us a little bit of background too. I'll do both of those things, you
0: know, mercifully as you kind of alluded to, Rose. Yeah, this case is finally over. Uh took over a decade. Doesn't mean there's not a few questions still lingering and I think the question that I have that still lingers for me is, why did it take so long for this case to finally wind its way through the courts? Now, remember, too, I should say this case was first filed in 2005, and it was a whole different world in 2005, right? Napster had just sort of leveled the music business Mm -hmm. and Publishers were rightly concerned about what Google was up to, and understandably so. But I think we can all agree the world has really sort of moved on. In that time, you know, the Kindle launched, and we got a modern ebook market. And uh, we have the Apple iPad and the iPhone. So, frankly, over the last decade, this case has really become something of an albatross around the Authors Guild's necks. So, mercifully, it's finally come to an end.
2: So, um, tell us exactly uh- – sort of where the case started and where we've ended up now, what what this decision is.
0: Sure. So it started in September of 2005, about a year after Google announced that it was going to scan books off library shelves uh, and index them on its site. And Google's reason for doing this at the time was because, you know, the world didn't begin when the internet was born, right? There was all this information that was sort of locked away on these books that were moldering on library shelves. And Google's mission was to index all of the world information, right? So they thought that they were going to have to go get this stuff if it was going to be uh, findable on the internet. And that caused the Authors Guild and the publishers as well to sue in 2005. The Authors Guild first filed suit in September of 2005, and the publishers followed a month later in October with their lawsuit. Now, you'll remember that the litigation was shelved for about three years, from 2008 to 2011, while all three of the parties, Google, the Publishers, and the Authors Guild, stumped for a controversial settlement. And that settlement essentially would have turned Google Google's index of these out of print books from library shelves into something of an online bookstore. Mm. And there would have been a database component that academic libraries would have been able to sign up for as well. So you may remember 2009, I think it was, it was, it was May of 2009. I kind of wrote the first major piece. That suggested that this Google settlement was doomed. And my editors at PW put it on the cover with a picture of a swirling toilet bowl. I remember, (laughs) of course. I I still remember some very angry phone calls from certain CEOs who were close to the settlement uh, (laughs) about that cover and about the story. But of course, in 2011, Judge Denny Chin did, in fact, reject that settlement. uh, And he did so amid pretty strong opposition. That included Amazon and the Department of Justice. And I remember I went to the settlement to the fairness hearing here in New York City and actually had a seat in the jury box over the course of the day while this was going on. And there were 21 speakers lined up to speak against the settlement. Mm. Uh, And it really sort of reinforced that this this settlement was really not going to happen. Hmm. And it really all started coming apart after that. In October of 2012, once Chin rejected the settlement, the most curious part of this case was the Authors Guild decided to file a parallel lawsuit. So they filed another suit against Google's library scanning partners, a coalition called the HathiTrust. Trust. The HathiTrust Trust was about 40 university libraries uh, that were interested in creating a sort of a dark archive of all of these books that were on their shelves for research purposes. And the Authors Guild decided to sue them at the same time they were suing Google, uh, And Interestingly enough, that case actually reached a decision before the Google case did. Judge Harold Baird delivered a pretty emphatic summary judgment ruling in favor of the Hathi Trust in October of 2012 in which he concluded that he could not imagine a definition of fair use that would compel him to shut down what he called this invaluable contribution to the progress of science and the arts. Shortly after that ruling, Chin weighed in. He echoed many of the same arguments. He found that Google scanning of these books was fair use. And two appeals courts affirmed. Uh, one affirmed Bear's ruling uh unanimously, and Chin's ruling was also affirmed unanimously. And that got us to the point where we reached last week where the Supreme Court declined to take the review, essentially making uh, Google scanning legal and settling the case law on this.
2: Wow. So... After all these years, after more than a decade, and you're right about how much things have really changed since then, not least of which is that the ebook and print sides of the market seem to have sort of found an equilibrium. So I don't think anyone's worried anymore that digitizing books is going to destroy publishing.
0: You know, it's strange. I don't think anyone really ever was worried about that. I think they were really worried when the Google scanners started firing up and they started taking all these books off library shelves, nobody really knew what the future was going to hold. It was still yeah. early and I think people were just they wanted some clarity about what was going to happen. And Google being a tech company, really, you know, they they weren't in the business of placating publishers and authors, right? They're, they come from the Silicon Valley Ask Forgiveness, Not Permission School. Mm-hmm. So they bear some role in this, I have to say. They didn't really sit down with publishers and, and and try to make the case as to why this was going to be good. And, of course, once a lawsuit is filed, it's all over. Then right. the lawyers get involved. The conversation become private and everything you – know, the, the discussion that you might have that would be broader and more public, it ends right there.
3: Yeah. So what was the Authors Guild uh, response to this? The Authors Guild's position mainly in this was
0: they called it a colossal loss that this was not reviewed uh, by the Supreme Court. They they still held out hope that they were going to uh, get this case heard by the Supreme Court. And basically what their argument to the court was, was that Google scanning off library shelves deprived them of the chance to create a market for search, which a licensing market, which I think the court rightly ruled was kind of absurd. I mean, you really could not have creators of content deciding which uh, search engines they were going to let, you know, Mm. scan their books or or make Mm. their information available. I don't think that's in anybody's public interest. At no point in this case, was there any testimony or any evidence at all that any Authors Guild member was actually harmed by Google scanning. In fact, most of the books that were scanned by Google are academic books, aren't even Authors Guild members, really. And you know, Google doesn't sell advertising against this. So even though Google is a for-profit company, they weren't really profiting off of this. But the way the Authors Guild was looking at this was, one, on principle, anytime a copy is made of a book and there's a commercial use involved, even if it's to put together an index that has great society benefit, the author should be paid. That was the principle. And in practice – they argued to the court that the author should have an opportunity to at least create this market to license their books into search. And the courts rejected that pretty summarily. In fact, eight judges looked at this case, two district judges and six judges on the appeals panel, and all eight came to the same conclusion that this was a fair use.
2: OK, so what happens now? Google keeps on doing what it's been doing anyway. And, uh, you know, where where do we go from here?
0: It's interesting. Uh, actually Google is probably pretty much done. You know, if you think about where the market is and where we are in the digital world right now, uh, Google has scanned over 20 million books wow. and they've been winding down their scanning program for some time now. There's really not a lot left for them to go out and grab. So, uh, by the time this lawsuit is, you know, it's now completely over. Google's pretty much got everything that it needs, and there's really been no harm to Authors Guild's members that we can see it, aside from being deprived of what they would like to see. Uh, as, as a licensing market for them. So I think two things happen now. One is this copyright battle is over in the courts, but it's really just starting to get going in the policy realm. And the Authors Guild is uh, filing comments on a number of different areas of copyright reform. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is seeking comments on its notice and takedown provision. Uh, the Authors Guild is involved with that. And I think the Authors Guild is going to try to make the case legislatively that the law needs to be friendlier to Authors who want to sort of license their works into a search market. But I can tell you that's just not going to happen. And the reason that's not going to happen is because we've had what, from 2005 to now, Google scan and make available for search all of these books in their database. And there's been no measurable harm to any author. In fact, there's considerable evidence that authors have benefited from this by having their books available and findable. Lawyers have told me that. This litigation may actually wind up working against the Authors Guild in the legislative realm, uh, now that it's over in the courts. And where did the librarians stand
3: on all of this?
0: The librarians were almost agnostic about this from the beginning. Uh, you know, they had concerns about this, but anything that leads to a net access of books or net access to information about books, they're going to be pretty much for. Um, so the librarians never opposed nor endorsed Google. They were critical thinkers in this almost throughout. They did have concerns about the settlement. Now, remember, the settlement had some pretty interesting proposals in it, and one of which would have been to create a database that only libraries could buy. Um, But there was concerns about how much that was going to cost, and there were concerns about giving Google this sort of monopoly over these out-of-print books that were on library shelves, which is why the HathiTrust was created, so that the, the, the libraries would at least have a copy of these books that they owned for themselves as well. So I think libraries are applauding the decision. They see the decision as one that upholds a standard. Standard of fair use that will make their future digitization efforts go a little more smoothly, maybe a little less litigiously. Hopefully, but I think librarians, for the most part, were cautious about this.
2: Well, it sounds like everybody can sort of sit back and relax now. Uh, you know, uh, it, did we have any sense of um, was there was there any? I don't know how it works when the Supreme Court decides not to hear a case. Is there any indication of how the individual justices weighed in, or it's just a no, thank you?
0: There's not, actually. There's, it's just a no thank you. And I thought it was interesting in the Authors Guild's – they sent out a two-page statement once the, the case was declined, a really lengthy statement with a number of uh, you know, sweeping points in it. And one of the points they made was that uh, Justice Kagan re- recused herself from hearing the case at conference. And so there were only seven justices because of Anthony Scalia's uh, passing. Only seven justices considered this. Now, it takes four out of nine seats, only eight judges at the time. But it takes four, four Supreme Court votes to get the case uh, accepted. And the author's guild suggested that because there were only seven, that, you know, this sort of was a higher hurdle. But that presumes that they know how Justice Kagan was going to vote on this. And I don't think they can say because she didn't say.
2: Right. Is there any indication of why she recused herself?
0: Um, She was an assistant attorney general, I believe, for some time. So she may have run up against this in in one of its various incarnations. Uh Um, So I'm guessing that that's probably why she did not say uh, why she recused herself. But I'm guessing that uh, the uh, attorney general uh, of the Department of Justice basically came out against the settlement and it did have some uh, views and do some research on the case. So I'm guessing that's why.
2: Okay, well, thank you so much for giving us this, uh, this summary of things. It's really nice to, to have that, that capsule of 11 years of litigation and right. argument and negotiation. And uh, I think we can all be glad that's over with. It's pretty <laughs> impressive. Indeed, yes. And you can move on to covering more, uh, more interesting stories now.
0: Well, this one has been interesting. I will say that. I'll give it that much as a reporter. I'm sad to see this one end because uh-huh. it definitely raised some fun issues. But I do agree with you. It's time for us to move on to issues that are going to have a, a more of an effect on our future than this one.
2: All right. Well, thanks so much, Andrew. It's always great to have you on the show.
0: My pleasure, as always.
2: And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Bridget Hios. I'm the author of It's Getting Hot In Here, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
3: And I'm Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: Join us next week for another exciting author interview. And we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
3: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net.